Open your Bibles. We're going to be in uh, the book of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 2, and I want to thank the Walquist family for uh, reading the Advent scripture for us and lighting the candle this morning. And of course, you may have noticed that Johannes was uh, actually in the play last weekend, and I think I'm still flying high from that. It was just a great time. He had one of my favorite times in the play because he sat next to the ladies that were the business ladies, and he took his shoes off and started kind of rubbing his feet. And you're just like, you know, that's the kind of thing that happens at an airport, right? And it's like, ah, put those back on. I loved last week and every bit of it. One of my most favorite memories was that one right there. I mean, who could just not be just overwhelmed with joy in seeing the little angels up there singing to us? And we, I, Rhonda asked me, she said, I noticed you took pictures last week and you had the most pictures of all the little ones. I said, they're photogenic. I mean, of course we're going to do that. So yeah, I had a whole bunch of pictures of the little ones, and uh, I want to thank once again Eric and Mary for the great job that they did last week, and all of our children for putting it up together for us. So thank you for that. We're going to read the scriptures in just a minute, but before we do that, uh, I want to just recognize something. Uh, I, I was singing this morning with you and seeing Christmas music, and I'm increasingly saying uh, it's now really becoming much more our music than it is our culture's music. You know, there's a, not that long ago, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I really felt like that there was a closer mesh of that. If you went into um, a mall or you went into some store somewhere, it was not out of the question that you'd hear Hark the Herald Angels sing. You'd hear that. Not, not, not so much anymore. You know, you're going to hear Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. I mean, that, and that, that's what you're going to hear. And... You know, that makes me a little sad, but it also makes me say, you know what, there's still something that's very anchoring about that music and the truth of that music that we need to continue to sing and, and uphold, even if our culture doesn't. We're not the first Christians in all of history to live in a culture that doesn't, you know, doesn't follow God and doesn't follow our Savior. And so there's lots of gone before us that teach us how to be faithful to God, how to be faithful to each other, how to love each other in the midst of that, and how to love lost people in the midst of that. And that's going to increasingly be our calling. And boy, it just is overwhelming for me right now as we just live within a culture that is having a more distant memory of who God is and who Jesus is, especially as the uh, incarnate one who came as the baby Jesus. Well, we move into the Christmas story again today. And uh, remember this series I'm calling He Understands. And I'm calling it He Understands because, again, Jesus lived a full life. He, he lived a human life. Uh, Jesus is the one that we say is incarnate, again, meaning he took on flesh. And Jesus comes and lives a life in all of humanity to experience the very things that we experienced, to go through the things that we went through. And if you remember last week, or two weeks ago, rather, I started off by saying Jesus understands family. If you were here for that, I was trying to make the point that Jesus understands wacky family he understands dysfunctional family. He understands your family. He understands my family. And Jesus understands that because, well, he lived that. He had family members that were off the deep end at times. He had family members that had trials and problems. And so he lived through that and has the capacity to understand our families because he had his own family that faced their issues. Today, I want to continue with this idea that Jesus understands I'm going to look at a little different angle today, and we are going to pick up the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph 
that all leave Bethlehem where he's born and they leave in order to go to Egypt. It's called the flight to Egypt. I want us to get our bearings here because we're going to read the passage in just a moment. But I want us to get our bearings here. So Jesus has been born. Uh, Jesus has been visited by magi who have come from the far away east, seeing a star, saying this means some, some great leader, some king is being born. And you remember he stopped, the, the magi stopped off at King Herod and they asked some questions about that. And King Herod is this massive fig- figure in all of history. Uh, he is the one who rebuilds the temple uh, in Jerusalem. He's the one who builds a place like called Masada that's gorgeous in Israel. If you have the chance to go there, do. He builds Caesarea Maritime right over on the coast. Just these massive building projects in Israel during his time that still stand today is this king. But this king also has a little bit of an edge. He's got a wicked side to him. And so he is searching out and saying, oh, the Magi came and said there's supposed to be some king born. Interesting. I would like to know more about this king. This could be a rival to me. And boy, I would really love to snuff out this new king. So let me try to figure out from the Magi where he's going to be born. And that's the background as we read our passage for today. All right, I'm picking up. I'm in chapter 2, and I'm starting in verse 13. And it says, Now, when they had departed, meaning the Magi, the wise men who visited Jesus, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were, who were there two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a place in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, we're asking for this passage today that often is not preached at Christmas because, well, it's filled with some violence. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today. This is part of the Christmas story, and I pray that you would use this in our lives. Would you give us perspective on the, the violence and, and the hatred that Jesus faced 
And would you apply that into our lives today? We will love you for it. Open us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Violence has filled our year in 2022. To quote Jesus, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And if you've been paying attention, since February, we know that uh, Ukraine, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine has, has filled the airways. Uh, you know, Putin thought that he was just going to do a little smash and grab campaign and march right into uh, Ukraine and, you know, uh, to take the capital within a couple of days. Well, it didn't quite turn out like that for him. And so it's turned into a slow and grinding war. And the individuals who almost always lose in a slow and grinding war are the civilians. And so most recently, the idea of Putin and his generals is to bomb the infrastructure of Ukraine. So all power supply and all water supply. With winter here, that's obviously a deep hardship on all the people of the Ukraine because there you know, no light at night and, and no water supply during even the day or night. And so again, it's a hardship. Imagine trying to lead your life right now without any water or any power. That, that would be a tremendous hardship for all of us. Of course, that's not the only violence that we've seen in this past year. Uh, you want to think about the stream of mass shootings that we've had in our own country, including school shootings, which are, are just senseless and heartbreaking. It's always like, why? Why that? And, you know, uh, again, I had to look back at some numbers. Did you know that there were 30 shootings this year, mass shootings this year, of 10 or more people? The number balloons if you go less than 10. But I'm just using 10 or more. There's been 30 of them this year in our country alone. A Highland Park parade shooting on, that happened on July 4th in Illinois, if you remember that one. The Robb Elementary School shooting that was in Uvalde, Texas. That one, again, had a lot of press. And the Colorado Springs nightclub shooting was the one that was most recent. Uh, it's been a very violent year for our world. There is a group that is, uh, puts together a thing called the Global Peace Index. And the Global Peace Index is put together by the Institute of Economics and Peace, which is an independent nonprofit think tank that published just this year their 16th time, this Global Peace Index, and they record data like armed conflict and violent protests and homicides and forced migration. All of these things they put into a kind of a formula to say, all right, how peaceful is the world at this time? Peacefulness has declined to its lowest spot in 15 years, fueled predominantly because of the post-COVID economic uncertainty and the war in Ukraine. The political terror scale, the political insecurity, neighboring countries' relationships with each other, refugees and internally displaced persons, all of those have reached their highest mark since they've even kept this scoring. And the global impact of violence has now reached $16.5 trillion a year, which adds up to 11% of the gross domestic product of the whole world. So 11% of what we do in creating an economy around the world is now spent on issues of security or issues of war. And just to give you an idea of how much that is, it's $2,117 per person around the, year, the world per year that's being spent in that way because of uh, war and, and insecurity in that way. 
So there's no shortage of violence around the world. That's not going to be a surprise to anybody today. Again, if you watch the national news every day, you're going to figure that out very quickly because that's always what comes onto our screen is that there's more violence in our world. So where does Jesus fit in with all this violence? In a word, what I want to say today is he understands. Why? Well, because he's experienced violence in his own life. Today, I want to talk about the second visit of an angel to Joseph when he said, take Mary and Joseph and uh, t- take Mary and the son and go and go to Egypt. So I want to cover that story. And I want to talk today about how Jesus understands violence in his world and violence in our world. Not a very common topic, again, for a Christmas uh, Sunday. But here we are, and it's part of our story. This is part of our story. Even if overlooked at times, it's part of our story, and it's worth understanding how Jesus understands violence in his world and in ours. All right, here's where we start. Jesus understands endless violence because he was threatened often in his own life, even as a baby. So again, the passage opens up and Jesus, excuse me, Joseph receives a second visit from an angel. You remember the first visit we covered a couple weeks ago? The first visit was take Mary to be your wife. She's been uh, overcome by the Holy Spirit who's now with child and she is the one that I want you to marry. And so Joseph obeys and does that. This is the second visit now of the uh, angel and the angel says, I want you to take the child and the mother and I want you to flee to Egypt. The time has come to leave. There's been many famous paintings of the flight to Egypt, but I want to show you one here. It's one of my favorites. And this one is uh, uh, an Italian painter named Vittore Carpaccio, painted in 1500 AD. And uh, this one hangs in the National Museum in Washington, D.C. And you can see them uh, on their way, the Holy Family, on their way uh, to, to Egypt. The family escapes, the story goes, but King, King Herod, who is wicked, uh, makes sure that he makes good on all of his threats and all of his violence, all of his fury, and he sends troops to the little town of Bethlehem, and he decides to have a little wide margin of error and decides to kill all the boy babies two years or younger. Now, it's likely that Jesus was, again, not just weeks old at this point, but maybe months old by the time that this decree came along. The Magi even visited Jesus probably as he's a little bit older as a child. But here's the issue, is that Herod wants to make sure he, he, he gets the right one, and so he has 30 boy babies who are killed. I want you to notice in the passage that Matthew does something repeatedly here. At least three times in this passage, he says, this is to fulfill prophecy. This is to fulfill prophecy. What he's saying is, God has predicted that this would happen, and it's happened. And so in this instance of, again, Herod killing the boy babies, he's saying that fulfilled what Jeremiah told us. And again, I'm going to put that up on the screen for you so you can see that again. But this is what Jeremiah says. He says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And that sounds a little cryptic, and it's like, what's going on with that? And how is that fitting into the story? Well, he's saying here that, no, go back. He's saying here that Rachel is this mother figure. And if you remember who Rachel is, Rachel is the favored wife of Jacob. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And so he's saying here that Rachel is like this mother figure of all of Israel. And she is mourning in Jeremiah's context because the Israelites are being taken into captivity. And as they are marching by her tomb, she is symbolically mourning for the entire nation. He's saying she too is mourning now as this mother figure over these boy babies that are innocently killed by this wicked king. And so it's fulfilling prophecy. It's fulfilling that there would be this mourning because this wicked king would go about doing his dastardly deed and this mother figure would mourn on behalf of the entire nation. Violence is persisting, not just when Jesus is born as a baby, but it persists through his entire life. And I want you to think of all the religious leaders who also sought the demise of Jesus. And of course, Jesus meets a very violent death. You know that he meets the death of crucifixion, which was the Roman way to kill people on display to say, this is what happens when you go against the government. This is what happens when you go against mighty Rome. We put people up on display on a crucifix, on a cross, in order to make sure that they are are shamed even as they are killed. And that's the death that Jesus receives. Some of you are well uh, aware that Ukraine, well, it seems far away, so it's like, well, there's not much violence around us. And even school shootings, I mean, they're not that frequent, right? So again, maybe we don't feel as though there's that much violence that's in our lives. But I want to remind you today of what Jesus' definition of violence is, because it might be a little bit different than our own. This is what Jesus says about violence. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. And so he's saying here something to us. He's saying, guess what? Violence is not just what happens when somebody takes a gun and shoots somebody. Violence actually happens with these tongues that are in our mouths. These tongues are like knives that come up behind somebody and stab in the back. They are that, that, that able to do that kind of damage. And so Jesus kind of blows it all up for us and says, wow, there's a lot more violence around you than you really realize. We want to always put kind of violence way over there. But violence can actually be something that we actually do or even promote. And so again, what I'm trying to say is Jesus is well acquainted with a world of violence because, well, he lived it and he taught it. All right, let's continue on. Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus understands power. What do I mean by this? Well, power is what is behind typical violence and threats of violence. You know the old saying, might makes right. Well, humans have the power and are always tempted to use their power to physically threaten others who do not wish to fall in line. Physically threaten or even even verbally threaten individuals. If you have the power, you're tempted to use it in that way. Many of you have followed the political unrest in Iran. Demonstrations are happening all over the country right now over the death of a woman who uh, was taken captive by the uh, morality police, is what they're called in Iran, And she was taken captive and likely killed because she did not wear her head covering or her hijab correctly. 
There's been demonstrations all over Iran that have continued now for months as a result of that killing. And other individuals are also being harmed as a result of that. I want to introduce you to just one of those today. Her name is Inez Rakabi. Here she is. And she is a rock climber, a very famous rock climber in Iran. She travels all over for competitions. Beautiful woman. And she travels all over the world in competitions. Well, she went to Korea in October, and she competed in Korea, and she competed without her head covering. She said later, well, it just kind of slipped off, but I think if you look at kind of the pictures of it, it was pretty evident that she really didn't wear it that day. And I think probably because she wanted to show solidarity with the, the woman that was killed. Well, here's what happened this week, and you may have missed this. I was looking over the news and saw this, and it just was saddening to my heart. Uh, her family, she lives at home with her family. I think she's still single. And the government came to her family's home and tore it down this week. They bulldozed it. Now, they said, oh, you know, they never had the proper permits to build it. You believe that? They did that as an act of retribution to her. They did that because they believed that what she was doing was a political statement and they wanted to stuff that out. And my point in saying then, bringing her story to our, uh, our minds, is that that's, that's what happens with power. Power often wants people to fall in line and is willing to use verbal or physical force in order to make that happen. And this is what we see happening in our world all around us. By the way, it happens not only in countries, but it happens on the playground, it happens in the boardroom. Power always is tempted to use it to coerce, to force others into line. Now, here's what I want you to hear today. I want you to hear that there is a time to avoid that power, and there is a time to confront that power. There's a time to avoid it, and a time to confront it. And in this passage today, it's actually one of the times where power like that is avoided. I mean, you see what happens. The angel comes and says, hey, don't even toy with this guy. Just get out of the way. Do an ole. Ole, go to Egypt. And we'll get out of his way because he's a madman. And now is not the time to be confronting the madman. You'll notice that there is a time, however, to confront power. And there's a time in which... Well, maybe you don't confront it in the way that you're trying to beat it down, but you're just saying, I'm going to suffer whatever the consequences are of that power, and I'm going to you know, suffer whatever they seem, deem is necessary for me not being compliant with what they want. I'm always moved by Jesus with Pontius Pilate. Jesus is, before his death, being tried multiple times. He goes before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says, Don't you know, I'm the man. I have got the power. Here's the passage right here, John chapter 19. Jesus gave him no answer, so he keeps on peppering him with questions. Jesus is not even responding to him. And he says, don't do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Don't think you're too hot stuff. You're not. Because unless God had given you any power, you wouldn't have any at all. And this is Jesus again saying, I'm not going to run away. I, I, I may have led by the Father in my infancy. I may have escaped that. But now I'm going to stand in front of that. Now I'm going to be one who says, no, I will not run away. I will suffer whatever the consequences are that you give to me. How do we know which to do? 
How, how do you know when you are to avoid it and when you are to confront it? Oh boy, isn't that a, that's a whole other sermon, I think. It's a whole other series, I think, in trying to figure out when you're to do that. All I can say is you pray and you discern what is happening and you discern what the Lord would have you to do at that time. But I want to tell you there's a time in which you avoid it and there's a time in which you confront it and there is a guidance given by God in the instances that we need both of those. All right, let's move on. Number three. Finally, Jesus understands protection. In the passage, Jesus is protected. There's a cosmic battle going on between Jesus and the ones that want to threaten and kill him around him. And first, God moves, of course, the family to Egypt, but then he brings them back to Israel and he redirects them to the town of Nazareth. I want to tell you what happens after Herod dies. Because Herod dies, and then Joseph gets another dream and says, come on back to Israel, it's time to be here now. But then he finds out, oh, wow, Herod has a couple of sons, and one of them is just as ruthless. Let me show you a map. Here's where they come back. This is Israel, ancient Israel, right after the time of the death of Herod. And Herod says, you know what? I'm going to split my authority and give three of my sons the ability to lead this land. And so again, there's Archelaus, one of his sons, who leads the green territory. Herod Antipas leads the, leads the pink territory. And Philip is the other son, and he leads that kind of, uh, what would it be, orangish color or uh, mustard color up there in the far right. Archelaus is the guy who is maybe most like dad, and he's got a little bit of a short fuse, and it's recorded in history that one city that was not very compliant, he killed 3,000 people in a, in a short time. You might imagine, even Rome was a little bit worried about this guy because only eight years after he starts ruling, they depose him and remove, remove him from power. But as Jesus is coming back in, Joseph says, man, that Archelaus guy, he, he's, he's a wild man, so let's get you out of that region and that moves them up to the area right next to the Sea of Galilee. You see Nazareth right there in that pink territory. And that's where Jesus is going to grow up, fulfilling that he would be a Nazarene. And giving him a safe place where he is going to grow up and he's going to uh, you know, lead a life that's preparing him for his three-year ministry uh, time. Some of you are saying, well, hold on a second, because Jesus was not ultimately protected. And you'd be right. Jesus was not ultimately protected. If you call protection, again, being always safe in this life, Jesus certainly was not protected in that way. But in God's view, I will contend that he was protected because oftentimes protection doesn't mean just my protection of my physical well-being right now, but it may mean something that is more eternal than that. Let me give you an example. Denise recently told me the story. John was about uh, two years old. We were back in Colorado at that time. And uh, she had bought him these little shoes. They were so cute. She found them at a garage sale. And they were these little penny loafers for little two-year-old John. She bought him for them. Uh, they bought him, them for him. There you go. They bought them for him. And uh, he, he wore them and, and he looked so cute in them. Well, one day we were at our church and there was about a, a, a staircase of maybe about 15 steps that was a concrete staircase that made its way up to the church building. She was on the top of that stairwell, and she saw him with his little shoes, and he kind of tripped. And she watched as he tumbled 15 stairs down 
the concrete stair stairwell. In horror and in tears, she makes her way down to the bottom to pick up her baby. Not a scratch. I mean, he was barely even crying. I mean, maybe a little disoriented, but no broken bones, no scratches on him. She said it was like angels had taken him to put bubble wrap around him as he made his little tumble down those stairs. She said he never wore the penta loafers again. That's the way it happens sometimes. Sometimes God intervenes and he protects in this life. And it's a miraculous thing and we, and we praise him for it. And yet there's other times in which that's not the way it goes down. I think of our dear friend Deborah Ridgway. <laughs> she lived a long, full life. But ultimately was taken home by our Lord. I don't know if I'd categorize that as the kind of protection that we at least look for in this life, but there are times in which God does grant that, and he granted that in Jesus' life early as he was taken out of the way of Herod, but later it was part of God's plan that he would actually face a cruel cross. Matthew chapter 10 is what Jesus means by protection. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So Jesus is giving us something of an indication of how he views security, how he views protection. And he says... Don't fear the people that can just harm your body. Those are not the ones you fear. You fear the one above who has control of the body and the soul for all of eternity. That's where your allegiance is placed. That's where your ultimate fear is placed. Knowing that within that, you are more valuable. He sees even sparrows that fall to the ground. And how much more valuable are sparrows than you? So a father's heart is for love for you. And he wants his your allegiance ultimately be to him, not to the individuals that can threaten a whole lot against you, but ultimately don't have eternal power like he has. There are times in which God's going to protect you physically in this life, but the greater promise is for a protection that is an eternal protection throughout all of eternity. Jesus understands violent violence. He can teach the course on violence because he lived it with a full experience of his life. Let's face it, there are times in which there's violence all around us and we wonder, God, where are you? Come, come act, please. Come act. Solve this situation right now. We need for you to. And I want to end with a story that I think is, again, a microcosm of the way that we feel about God and his control of the world. I have a picture here of uh, a sign that is at Pacific Little League. And I want to read this sign for you because I think it's a great sign. For everybody that goes to the field, they are reminded these are kids. This is a game. Coaches are volunteers. Officials are human. The pros are not scouting here today. That's a great one, by the way. And sportsmanship starts on this side of the fence. 
Why did Pacific Little League put that up? Because they have a lot of experience in watching parents get out of control. And parents think that little Johnny boy, he's going to make the majors one day. Scouts are here right now. They're tabulating it all. And they put that up there because guess what? We as people need it. I want to tell you a story, that true story that happened with us. John was maybe about nine. We were playing, and I was a coach. We were playing another team that we always played really tight. We were really good competition with each other. The other coach was a piece of work, all right? There's no other way to say it, piece of work. And, you know, Denise and I still know his name and bring him up, and, boy, he, his, his image can just, boom, be right there for us. It was a tight game. We were playing each other close like we always do. Two outs, last inning, comes down to a play at the plate. We were on defense. By the way, there's a 15-year-old umpire. Play at the plate, throw from the outfield, catcher in a bang-bang play, makes the catch, tags the runner. He's out! We're like, yes! Game one! We're flooding out of the field, just high-fiving the kids for this great win. The coach comes screaming out of the dugout with all of his fury on this 15-year-old kid. The 15-year-old kid is probably thinking to himself, this is not worth 20 bucks on a hot dog. I can tell you right now. (laughs) He changes the call. Safe. And the other team wins. I use that as a story because... It's in moments like that where there's such, you know, little injustice, right? I mean, this is just a little one compared to the big injustice of the world. But you're like, God, why won't you interact? Why won't you do something about this guy? This this guy that's out of control over here. Why don't you do something about that? And we can just chew nails over that situation because we can just see how wrong it is. God is often intervening. (laughs) And he's intervening in perhaps ways that, well, we can't see or don't think is enough. Was it enough for him to just take the family and escape to Egypt? Why not smack Herod? That's what you should have done, God. Smack Herod. God's like, no, that's not not the way that I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this my way, not your way. We live in a violent world. And we have a Savior who came and got his hands dirty. He understands all of what we feel. He understands the struggle. He understands the dismay. He understands the longing for more, for a a correction of all of that. And in fact, he's even the one that promises, I'm going to set it all right, but you have to be patient with me. I'm coming back to set it all right, but you have to be patient with me. Jesus overcomes the violence of our world through his gospel and through him being the benevolent leader that he is that one day leads all human hearts. This is the hope of Christmas. This is our Savior, our Jesus, who understands our violent world. Lord, this is not the theme that I normally preach at Christmas. It's one we don't often even consider. 
And yet here's this story placed here about this wild man king and the holy family that honors you by actually leaving the country and getting out of the sphere of this man. And yet we follow a savior who wasn't just an avoider at all. He was one that waded into the deep stuff so often with people. And you, Savior Jesus, are doing that in our own lives. You wade in all the times with us in the deepest parts of our, the recesses of our soul that need to be touched. Thank you for this. Thank you for being the complete Savior that you are. And we trust you with the violence of our world. We trust you with the violence, perhaps, is even in our own hearts at times. We love you. We honor you. We worship you this Christmas. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.